Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. And this is Steve. Uh, I want to uh, to capture uh, what happened in the Iowa caucuses, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Also, we're going to uh, take a look at 2024 and beyond, uh, taking a different tack in the show for this week, uh, in part because of the Iowa caucuses, but also because those mean that we are now officially into the 2024 uh, primary election season, uh, where the temperature and the energy and the rhetoric is going to ratchet up incredibly as we go forward. So uh, we will be uh, reporting on events from the various primaries and caucuses uh, around the country and uh, what it means. And then we're going to take uh, a little uh, look into uh, a crystal ball and uh, talk about uh, the direction America could go. We're going to look at uh, one of the possible futures for the country uh, based on the outcomes of the elections this year uh, for president. So uh, I'll give you my thoughts on that and uh, start off our first conversation. Uh, and then the uh, last portion of the show uh, wanted to uh, look back at Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And I want to talk about uh, something that uh, is, is kind of a pet peeve of mine. And it involves the speech that was given uh, in August of 1963 uh, by Dr. King uh, on the uh, National Mall, uh, colloquially called now the I Have a Dream speech. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that and contrast it to what we see occurring in uh, our country today. So with that being said, let's get right into it. And you know, as I, as I started off saying, uh, this past Monday, not only was it Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but it was also the date of the Iowa caucuses, uh, which uh, typically are the first uh, uh, shot in the presidential election season and uh, very little surprise there. Um, former President Trump uh, won the Iowa caucuses uh, handily, getting uh, about 51% of the votes, uh, followed by Ron DeSantis, who got uh, 21%, and Nikki Haley, who got 19%. Noticeably absent from the report was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who has uh, suspended his campaign following the same action that had been taken by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie uh, about a week ago, and uh, then there were three. So, by way of explanation, uh, the Iowa caucuses, uh, as I said, are you know, historically the first uh, election uh, offering of the presidential campaign season. Uh, this year, because uh, the Republicans are the party out of power with regard to uh, the White House, uh, they are the ones that are having the caucus. Uh, the Democrats um, not participating in the caucus as, you know, they are the incumbents. So what did we see uh, transpire? Well, as I said, uh, it, it really was no surprise at all that um, the former president uh, uh, cleared the field in um, Iowa. And you know, we will see over the coming days uh, how that plays out. Now, I should add to that that immediately following you know his his victory in Iowa uh, former president was seated in a courtroom in New York uh, as the start of the second uh, defamation trial uh, involving E. Jean Carroll 
launched on Tuesday and you know jury selection was completed and opening arguments uh, are getting started now on this and uh, we'll see how this one plays out uh, keep in mind that it is not a trial about uh, the actual acts that were committed uh, by the former president uh, on Ms. Carroll. That's already been decided in a prior trial that occurred back in May. This trial will be uh, solely about assessing the damages to be levied as a result of the uh, finding uh, of fact uh, in the other trial. So we'll see uh, exactly how deep into his pockets uh, the Donald is going to have to dig in order to uh, uh, pay Ms. Carroll uh, for damages incurred as a result of the defamation and assault that she endured uh, and as was found guilty of uh, by the prior trial. Um, so moving to, you know, talking about where we are going as a country. Uh, in the last episode, uh, I did get into the subject of uh, what would it mean if uh, the Donald lost uh, the election, even though, as I said, it was kind of a, uh, a, a, an established fact that he was going to win. But, you know, this time I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what the possible future might look like uh, should uh, he be returned to the White House? Uh, in order to kind of provide a little bit of background texture to that, uh, I found an article uh, regarding uh, Alabama uh, spending nearly a billion dollars for a single prison. Uh, and this uh, article came out uh, back in March of last year from the Equal Justice Initiative. And I pulled this because uh, I think it, it kind of paints a picture of what a Republican uh, administration uh, might look like based on what is occurring in the uh, red state of Alabama. Let me read this to you. It's a very short article, so uh, I will just I'll read it from top to bottom. So again, it's Alabama to spend nearly $1 billion for a single prison. Uh, posted on March uh, 21st of last year from the Equal Justice Initiative. And it goes, Alabama state officials voted last week to increase the amount the state will pay a private company to build a new prison in Elmore County to nearly $1 billion. The resolution was passed by the Alabama Correction, Correctional Institution Finance Authority, a group of seven state officials who have final authority over all financial decisions related to building or leasing state prisons. In April 2022, Alabama signed a contract with Montgomery-based Cadell Construction Company to build a 4,000-bed prison in Elmore County. The initial guaranteed maximum price, according to the agreement, was $623 million with construction to be completed by January 2026. Uh, the resolution passed uh, that week uh, raised the maximum price to $975 million, a 57% increase, and pushed back completion to June of 2026. Uh, the article goes on, the contract to build the Elmore facility was given to Cadell after Alabama lawmakers passed a bill allowing state agencies to circumvent the standard competitive bid process. Put a pin in that. We're going to talk about it. The director of the Legislative Services Agency said signing a deal with Cadell without soliciting bids from other com companies would save the state $75 million by locking in material costs sooner. This is the second billion-dollar commitment made by the Alabama Department of Corrections in two months. In February of last year, the ADOC entered a $1 billion contract with private pri prison medical provider YesCare, 
formerly known as Corizon. The billion-dollar contract for a single 4,000-bed prison is roughly equivalent to the budget of the entire Alabama Department of Mental Health, which provides services to more than 200,000 Alabamians annually. So let, let's break this down. Alabama decides they're going to spend nearly a billion dollars on a 4,000-bed prison. Now, given the, the nature, and we've talked about Alabama on this program uh, quite a few times, Given the nature of what has been transpiring in Alabama with regard to uh, police and um, convictions and and so forth, uh, the first question one would ask is, uh, who is this prison going to house? And and I think, you know, we know uh, who the majority occupants of that prison ultimately will be. The second question and, and one that, that you know, I have is 4,000 beds. Uh, that's bigger probably than some of the, the communities in Alabama that uh, don't have 4,000 residents. Um, you know, and the third question, and this one I think really raises the red flag, is that this was done after the lawmakers passed a bill, uh, and I remind you, Alabama is a red state, so the, the Republicans control the legislature uh, and, I believe, the governor's mansion. Uh, so their bill allowed state agencies to circumvent the standard competitive bid process. Now, the function of a competitive bid process is you have a project that you want to get done, so you put it out for bid. And you encourage companies to compete to, to win that contract. Now, under normal circumstances, the uh, lowest qualified bidder uh, who meets all the requirements of the contract, has the capabilities, has the skills, has the, the resources necessary to complete your project, they are the ones who are awarded the contract because they are the best able to complete it uh, within the budget that is set. Now, if you bypass that, uh, basically you can hand this contract to whoever you want. And, you know, clearly, um, you know, the, the deal that was signed, um, as, as it says in the article, without soliciting bids from other companies, according to the article, would save the state $75 million by locking in material costs sooner. Now, that should be or, or should be examined to see if there would have been any offset in having a competitive process where the simple fact that you have more than one company competing to win the project uh, would ultimately come in with a reduced cost for the project. Uh, most construction projects that are put out to bid um, will come in at a price that is typically lower than what the the bidding agency uh, has budgeted to do the project. That's the whole point of competition. Uh, and you know, having you know contracted a billion dollars roughly for a four thousand bed prison, and also have a billion dollar commitment to another company for a medical facility, um, and you know, in Alabama, a state with uh, incredibly low uh, economic uh, strength. Um, you know, they are, you know, uh, uh, a poor state. Their education uh, report cards typically put them down in the, in the uh, 45, 46th out of 50 states uh, year over year. Uh, you know, they have a lot of uh, social problems with their population that could obviously get a lot of assistance from $2 billion. So they're diverting $2 billion to build prisons uh, rather than spend it on improving schools, improving uh, health care, uh, improving you know, uh, local roads or other state-funded projects. 
you know, housing. How many low in, how many units of low income housing could you build for a billion dollars? You know, yet what they're building is a prison, a house of incarceration. Uh, so, you know, this uh, reason I picked this article is uh, because uh, one of the, the things that we could see on this possible path uh, should Donald Trump uh, and, and you know, Republicans win the day in November, uh, this is, could be typical of the kind of things that we would see. We've talked on this show previously about something called Project 2025. Uh, if you have not uh, looked that up, if you haven't, um, you know, I realize it's a 900 plus page document. So it's not, you know, like a, a Sunday afternoon quiet read with a cup of tea. But uh, there are summaries of it out there available online that give you the gist of what this project uh, document is. It is, as we've talked about, and you can go back uh, about three episodes back in our archive. And um, you, can, you can see or hear my discussion of Project 2025. It is an operational blueprint for the next Republican administration. And it's a key phrase. They're not saying for the Trump administration because there's the possibility uh, that you know, Trump will not be successful in his effort to regain the White House. However, the next Republican that sets foot in that building will have this document sitting on their coffee table uh, as the blueprint for how uh, this group wants to uh, reform our country. Uh, the document was put together uh, by the Heritage Foundation uh, with the assistance of about 80 different conservative think tanks and, and advisory groups and partners uh, you know, to lay out an operational plan for how the United States of America would be run uh, in a Republican administration. Now, here's the other thing I want you to keep in mind. Um, how much have you heard uh, in the mainstream media uh, about Project 2025? Uh, it got uh, a brief bump in reporting uh, a, a, a few months ago in you know, mid-fall of 2023. Uh, it kind of uh, bubbled to the surface and got a little bit of discussion, not a whole great detail, um, before it you know, faded and was uh, surpassed by other uh, Republican events like the election of uh, Mike Johnson to Speaker of the House and uh, the expulsion of uh, the uh, congressman from New York, um, you know, so forth and so on. Um, it, it, it was something that uh, surfaced out and was, in my opinion, put in a conscious effort to push it back down below the radar uh, so that it, it wouldn't be a subject of political discussions. Uh, it wouldn't uh, surface as a matter of course in the upcoming elections, and it could sit there in the background just ready to be enacted by, as they say, quote, the next Republican administration. So, you know, it, it is, it's clear that, you know, there is a bigger game afoot. Uh, all the, the histrionics that you see with, you know, the Jim Jordans and the Matt Gateses and uh, Maggie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and all the other clowns in the clown car um, that is you know the as as I've described in past episodes how a magic trick works you've got a distraction and then you've got the objective by the magician of what they're really trying to do so while all of this this drama playing out uh, is important uh, it, it does deserve our attention we need to make sure that it is not all we are focused on we need to make sure that uh, we are, are seeing 
the bigger picture, that we are gathering information from multiple sources so that we see these Project 2025-like initiatives uh, as they are, are coming out into the light of day. Uh, because they are going to dictate what life in America uh, is going to be like. Uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump has said, you know, he is going to be a dictator for a day on day one of his administration should he be elected. Uh, he's talking about, uh, you know, restructuring the FBI, uh, turning the Department of Justice into his personal revenge tool. Uh, all of these kinds of things that he wants to do uh, in you know, his administration should he be reelected to the White House. Now, you know, there, there's more to it. And again, Project 2025, the document is very detailed on the kinds of things that they're going to do. Um, you know, they're going to uh, initiate strict controls over the media. Uh, they may rescind licenses of uh, media outlets that you know they don't like or they disapprove of or uh, are critical of the administration. Uh, there's even you know talk and and it keeps surfacing from time to time that um, Trump wants to turn the American presidency from a a four year term to a presidency for life with the possibility of making it a family uh, operation and handing off the uh, leadership of the government to you know uh, his sons uh, and and there's there's some thoughts that will keep you awake at night um, you know Don jr as president of the United States uh, or you know Eric Trump as you know president of the United States it's a scary that's a scary premise uh, and yeah I put it out there um, so you know we need to make sure that if we want to retain our representative uh, democracy or repre representative democratic form of government as we have now even with all of the flaws that it has um, you know the the remedy for a an elected official that we disapprove of is the voting booth uh not you know the next of kin and that's not uh hyperbole uh there have been quite a few um you know historians and others who have said that you know based on what they are hearing coming out of the republican party in general and the trump uh orbit in particular that you know, the 2024 election might be the last election uh, or the last free election that occurs in this country. And, you know, that is not what uh, America was designed to be. And it, it, it is, you know, something that would have a tremendous impact not only on our country, but on the world. You know, uh, Donald Trump has said that among the other things, and it talks about it, in the Project 2025 document that the United States relationship with NATO, for, exa for example, would be dramatically revised, uh, if not, you know, pulling out of NATO altogether. And that would lead to, you know, basically a destabilization of, you know, the, the military balance of power in the world uh, and, you know, you could see the Soviet, the Russians uh, defeating Ukraine and moving on to Poland and other company, countries and, you know, and Germany. You could see, um, you know, the continued battle in uh, the Middle East uh, where, you know, an unchecked uh, Israel uh, might, you know, ramp up its attacks in Gaza um, and uh, bring the accusations of genocide that we're hearing talked about now uh, into you know, a, a more real scenario. Uh, you know, China could decide that you know, if, if America is not going to play in the world, that they're going to go ahead and annex Taiwan back into the motherland. So, I mean, there is, there is a lot 
that would have dramatic impacts on you know our our country, our economics, uh, our 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 way of living, you know, and it, the the threat is uh, real. The th- the potential is there for that to happen uh, if we uh, allow it to happen by you know relaxing our diligence and our votes uh, to continue uh, our imperfect uh, democracy moving forward. So, you know, as always, it, it comes back down to the fact that, you know, we have to get out and vote and vote in numbers that cannot be overcome by, you know, uh, uh, disenfranchisement or games, tricks or, or other uh, diversionary tactics uh, to try and keep us from the polls. Uh, we need to make sure that all of us, you know, Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, are exercising our voice. Uh, in the past, you know, when we have had, you know, elections and, you know, if it was a Democratic administration and the Republicans got elected, you know, we shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, so we got to work with the Republicans now and vice versa. You know, if the Republicans were in power, and the Democrats, uh, you know, won the day, then yeah, they would turn around and, and figure out a way to work with the Democrats uh, to keep our country moving forward. When, you know, when uh, Bill Clinton uh, defeated George Bush, uh, George Bush didn't stay home on Inauguration Day. He went. There was a peaceful transfer of power. When Ronald Reagan defeated uh, Jimmy Carter, same scenario. There was a peaceful transfer of power. There wasn't the sit in your corner, you know, holding your breath until you turn blue, uh, like we saw in the 2020 election. So, you know, we have work to do, and we're going to continue to talk about the work we've got to do on this program as we go forward through this, you know, amazing election year that we have just now started. So as I always say, you know, strap in, keep your hands and feet inside the ride and, you know, let's roll. Let's get out there. Let's make sure that we're registered to vote, that we're checking our registrations, that our friends are registered and that we are uh, encouraging, uh, cajoling, asking, begging them to get out to the polls and exercise their vote. Uh, That's the only way that we let our political leaders know that we're paying attention. So, you know, that that's uh, where we are with that. Some other things that, you know, could uh, manifest, especially uh, with what um, Project 2025 is saying is, you know, as I said, they would make drastic uh, revisions to the Department of Justice. Uh, and, you know, it, it is clear that, you know, if uh, Donald Trump, for instance, is reelected, that he is going to, uh, uh, number one, he's going to eliminate, you know, he's going to shut down uh, all of the federal uh, cases that he is currently facing. Uh, It's unclear what, if anything, he can do about the case in Georgia. Uh, He may not be able to escape that one, but uh, all of the federal cases, uh, he would just instruct the Department of Justice to, you know, abandon them, wrap it up, tie it up, end it, Um, you know, and, you know, turn the Department of Justice into his personal revenge tool. Uh, He's already said that he's going to go after uh, the Biden family, he's going to go after, uh, you know, even Republicans who uh, weren't uh, completely loyal to him when he was in office or, you know, uh, testified against him in the January 6th hearing. So he's going to be uh, the angel of retribution uh, should he come back to the White House. And, you know, and that's not what we are as Americans, uh, plain and simple. So, you know, our work is clear ahead of us. We're going to be talking about 2024 and beyond uh, as sort of a continuing thread 
uh, through this year as we work our way to the November elections. All right, so that being said, let's take a break here. When we come back, I want to talk about um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I, I want to talk in particular uh, about one element of the uh, 1963 March on Washington for Jobs, Peace, and Freedom, uh, and kind of the, uh, the whitewashing or the revisionist history that's been applied to that march. So we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be right back. I always had to be so good, no one could ignore me. Carve my path with data and drive. But some people only see who I am on paper. The paper ceiling. The limitations from degree screens to stereotypes that are holding back over 70 million stars. Workers skilled through alternative routes rather than a bachelor's degree. It's time for skills to speak for themselves. Find resources for breaking through barriers at tearthepaperceiling.org. Brought to you by Opportunity at Work and the Ad Council. And welcome back right now to the Fired Up podcast here on WJMS Media. All right, let's uh, keep it rolling. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, uh, and I, I teased it in the first segment, is uh, kind of a pet peeve I have with how the... Uh, speech that was given by Dr. King uh, on the National Mall in 1963 uh, is uh, replayed each year and is is titled the I Have a Dream speech. And while it's true, you know, it, it is one of the great pieces of oratory of, of all time, uh, it should not go by the boards uh, to note that it's actually that speech as delivered or as we hear is actually the last six minutes of a 17 minute speech uh, that was given by Dr. King. And the first 11 minutes uh, have been uh, dropped, uh, eliminated, uh, revised out, whatever you want to call it. But uh, that 11 minute speech was talking about the failure of the United States at the time, and again, remember, we're talking about 1963 here, uh, to honor the commitments that were made uh, with the, uh, the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation and the onset of Reconstruction, and essentially how, uh, as, as Dr. King put it, uh, it, it wrote a check, the government wrote a check to the, the freed uh, African slaves in this country, uh, a check that has never been cashed and has come back marked insufficient funds, as he put it. Uh, the, the bottom line is that, you know, that w- was uh, and, and continues to be one of the earliest uh, examples of uh, revisionist history or, you know, whitewashing the past uh, and so forth. Uh, I urge that you go out and find the entire speech uh, as delivered and listen to it. Uh, and when you do, uh, realize that you're, you're talking about a speech that was delivered uh, in 1963, which is, uh, you know, 60 years ago plus uh, now as we sit here, you know, in January of 2024, uh, and look at and compare how much of the circumstances that Dr. King is talking about uh, actually still exist in this country uh, in, in, in different language and different words. Uh, we still suffer from the disenfranchisement and the discrimination and, you know, the, the blocking of voting and, and so forth. Uh, that was the root cause of the march uh, to Washington in the first place. Uh, remember, if you go and, and look at images from that march, you will see that the signs that were being carried uh, were uh, signs that were calling for uh, jobs, that were calling for freedom, and were calling for peace. So, you know, there is a lot of parallels uh, from that time frame carried forward to this time frame, some of which is the fact that some things uh, still have not uh, fully changed. So 
uh, just just a note on that. And you know, as I said, uh, go check it out. Do do the research. Find out for yourself. Listen to that speech. Uh, look at what the issues were that he was talking about then, and contrast them with uh, where we stand today. For while black people, in, you know, in in general, and people of color in general in this country, while we have made great strides, we have come a long way. Uh, we still have a a long way to go, and you know the the distance that we have traveled through all of the battles since uh, that speech was delivered uh, really are are still battles that we fight today. So just wanted to put that out into the universe there. All right, um, moving to more recent events, a uh, couple of things of note. Uh, news flash coming across just as I uh, started to uh, record uh, this show. You know, a- as you may know, I record these on Sundays typically, and uh, you know they get aired uh, the Tuesday after that. Uh, but the news wires are now talking about how uh, presidential candidate uh, Ron DeSantis has suspended his presidential uh, run, uh, now boiling the race down to essentially uh, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley on the Republican side. So you know we'll we'll get and dig into that and and bring you more information in, in uh, upcoming uh, podcasts. But for right now, it is down to a two-person Republican race, uh, former President Donald Trump and uh, former U.N. ambassador and governor uh, Nikki Haley, uh, who will you know, battle it out for the Republican nomination uh, for 2024. Immediately following his announcement of ceasing his presidential campaign, uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, through his endorsement, to uh, former President Trump for the nomination. Uh, No real surprise there, as there has been no love lost between DeSantis and Nikki Haley uh, throughout the campaign. Uh, And he continues in his strategy of endearment to the former president. Uh, Maybe it will uh, manifest a reward for him as a uh, nod to be Uh, the vice presidential candidate, uh, we shall see going forward. All right, uh, let's get back to uh, some other things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, You know, in the first segment, I mentioned that the state of Alabama was uh, committed to spending nearly a billion dollars on a 4,000 bed prison uh, and they are also spending a second billion dollars on a prison medical facility in the state. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, uh, they're you know, doing these two rather than uh, ex- expanding or improving their school system, which ranks near the bottom of the 50 state list in this country, as well as other uh, services and uh, benefits to the people. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Uh, in another re- story, uh, this one out of Louisiana, uh, the lawmakers there uh, passed a new congressional map with a second majority black district. Uh, we talked about Louisiana's uh, battle over uh, its uh, redistricting uh Uh, system and the districts they had chosen in an earlier show. And uh, I had mentioned that it had gone uh, to the courts and uh, the uh, legislature uh, facing pressure from the uh, possibility of the court uh, designing a map uh, went ahead and passed a congressional map that has a second majority black district uh, this past Friday. Uh, This was an article from the Associated Press that came out on the 19th, uh, marking a win for Democrats uh, and civil rights groups uh, after, you know, the legal battle, as we've talked about, and the political tug of war that has been going on for nearly two years. Um, So, you know, this is, you know, in, in result of the Democrats fighting for a long time for a second majority minority district 
among Louisiana's six congressional districts. Their argument was that the political boundaries passed by the GOP-dominated legislature in 2022 discriminates against black voters who make up a third of Louisiana's population. Uh, the change would deliver an additional seat in Congress to the Democratic Party. Uh, there was resistance by the GOP uh, for drawing this district, arguing uh, that the 2022 map uh, was fair and constitutional. Uh, but in a you know kind of a surprise, the about face uh, in in a special legislative session, uh, the the revised map received bipartisan support after Republicans said their hands had been tied by a looming January 30th court-mandated deadline and fears that a federal judge who was nominated by former President Barack Obama would redraw the map herself if the task was not completed by lawmakers. So they, they bowed to that pressure, uh, passed a second majority minority district, and that legislation will now go to the desk of Republican Governor Jeff Landry, where it's expected to receive his seal of approval. Uh, Louisiana, you know, as is no surprise here to listeners of this program, is among the states who are wrangling uh, over congressional districts uh, based on the results of the U.S. Supreme Court in June ruling that Alabama had violated the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, Louisiana is among states who saw handwriting on the wall that said their districts were about to be, you know, drawn out from under them if they didn't act and, and, you know, essentially do the right thing. So, you know, one of the benefits here is under the new map, 54% of the voting age population in the district currently held by Republican U.S. Representative Garrett Graves would be black, up from the current 23%. Uh, no surprise that Graves opposed the plan, saying in a statement that th it, it it, quote, ignores the redistricting principles of compactness and communities of interest. Hmm. Other Republicans on the state House and Senate floors echoed his concern. You know, and the 2022 map, uh, which was used in last November's election, uh, there was only one majority black district, the second, which the second district, that is, which encompasses most of New Orleans and stretches to Baton Rouge. Uh, it's represented by Rep, U.S. Rep. Troy Carter. Carter is the state's sole black and democratic member of Congress. You know, this, this map and the battle around it, you know, it, it's been a, a, a bone of contention uh, and at the center of political woes in the state capitol uh, with former Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards vetoing the political boundaries in the legislature overriding his veto. Uh, and that was the first time they had over, the legislature had overridden the governor's veto in nearly three decades. So, you know, Louisiana now goes from one to two uh, minority, uh, majority minority districts uh, and continues um, what we are seeing as something of a trend. You know, as mentioned, Alabama uh, had the same outcome uh, based on court order. This one was spearheaded by the legislature. So, you know, we, we see that, you know, even though uh, Republicans have been, uh, you know, trying to play hardball with districting and using their gerrymander uh, authorities uh, gained in, in many states, uh, that there, there are efforts underway, uh, sometimes successful, to overcome those hurdles. So we'll, we'll keep an eye and, and bring any additional developments and any additional states that follow the lead, and uh, we will keep you informed. Uh, and, you know, just as a, as a word of opinion, uh, it, in, in my mind, this indicates really the battle that uh, Democrats and independents uh, in this country uh, face in terms of uh, reversing what has been a trend toward, uh, you know, Republican control and Republican ownership of the political real estate in, you know, states they control uh, going back, you know, several decades. 
So, you know, not an easy battle by no means, uh, very contentious, but, you know, there is progress being made on several fronts, and hopefully we will continue to see additional states uh, take up the battle of uh, addressing, you know, the impacts and effects of gerrymandering that have been perpetrated on states uh, going back to uh, the days of Ronald Reagan and the Southern strategy and so forth. One thing that should be noted here is that uh, these changes, um, you know, the uh, additional districts being drawn uh, based on, you know, action by the legislatures or, or by the courts uh, do not happen in a vacuum. Uh, there is a significant and substantial uh, amount of pressure being brought to bear uh, by the electorate to make these uh, changes happen. And we need to make sure that we continue that effort uh, and, and basically don't let up, don't take our foot off the gas pedal uh, in terms of bringing this you know, electorate pressure to bear on these officials, particularly as we say often here on this show at the state level, because that's where these changes uh, manifest themselves. And they represent one component of the strategy we need to use in order to uh, combat this uh, extreme conservatism, uh, this, this MAGA uh, uh, Republican efforts to, to change the nature of our country. And, you know, we've talked about this on this program uh, many, many times. Uh, most recently, uh, we've been talking about something called Project 2025, which is a 900-some-odd-page uh, uh, handbook for a uh, conservative uh, MAGA, if you will, uh, administration to uh, deconstruct key elements of our democracy, uh, like the Department of Justice, like the FBI, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Um, there's a interesting um, document that I found on Substack, uh, and it's called, and you can go look it up there, uh, it's called The Authoritarian Playbook for 2025. Promises, Powers, and Plans. And it's a, a document that talks about how an authoritarian president will dismantle our democracy and what we can do to protect it. Now, you know, like the Project 2025, uh, this is, you know, a, a uh, involved read. Uh, it runs, you know, in excess of, you know, about 90 pages. Uh, but I want to go through and just kind of, you know, highlight and give you the introduction to it to give you a taste of what it uh, contains and the strategies that it details that, you know, an informed electorate can take in order to combat these elements of uh, uh, political control that we see playing out uh, coming from the the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Uh, so, as I said, it's called the Authoritarian Playbook for 2025, uh, and the the chapters uh, read, um, you know, start off with what we can expect: one, pardons to license lawbreaking; uh, two, directing investigations against critics and rivals; three, regulatory retaliation. Four, federal law enforcement overreach. Five, domestic deployment of the military. And six, the autocrat won't leave. Uh, and, you know, it also lists uh, some things uh, for recommendations as to what we can do. Now, again, this is a, uh, a, a document that details how we, uh, we, we effectively combat what we are seeing with, um, you know, Project 2025 and with the uh, things we have heard coming out of the, uh, you know, Republican frontrunner uh, for president in 2024 and others, uh, you know, notably, you know, for example, 
how um, former president has stated uh, when asked if he was going to operate as a dictator, uh, his reply was no, except for the first day. And, you know, that uh, that answer has garnered a ton of media coverage. Uh, But what I don't hear the media talking about is the fact that uh, knowing how former President Trump operates, uh, do we really expect that he would, you know, take this dictatorial stance uh, for, you know, one 24-hour period and then say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go back to, you know, nice guy now. Uh, No, that's not how he operates. It's not how he's operated uh, ever since he came down that escalator uh, in uh, 2016 or 2015. Um, So, you know, and in fact, that's how this executive summary of this starts out. You know, it says, and I quote, since June 16th, 2015, the day that Donald Trump descended an escalator in Trump Tower and announced his run for the presidency, the American body politic has struggled to figure out how to treat him, his rhetoric, and the threat he poses to our system of government. Uh, you know, and, you know, a, a, a similar pattern plays out repeatedly. Trump makes a seemingly outlandish prop promise that upends conventional understanding of politics, then those who help Americans make sense of current events, vis-a-vis the media, other politicians, pundits, and influencers, dismiss, distort, or deny the very promise Trump has made, and few then know quite what to make of it all or how to respond, a state of confusion that has enabled Trump to shatter democratic norms, previous in previously inconceivable ways and I think that you know speaks volumes it is something we have seen occur time and time again where you know the former president has made uh, what are initially considered outlandish statements uh, but as we you know proceed beyond those we see that actually they are the leading edge of a uh, more deeply thought out plan that he has uh, working with his group of advisors uh, and influencers and so forth to actually accomplish uh, some of these outlandish things. You know, the, the, the summary goes on. It says, we now have more than eight years of experience with this phenomenon and a full presidential term as a track record proving that Trump's pledges should be taken both seriously and literally. He has, for the most part, sought to do the extreme things that were dismissed as mere rhetoric when first promised, from enacting a, quote, Muslim ban, close quote, to refusing to accept the results of an election. And yet, here we are again, with Trump making even more extreme promises to, quote, terminate the Constitution, seek retribution against political opponents, and be a dictator just for one day, only to see uh, people unsure uh, what to make of or how to respond to these threats. So the aim of this report is to uh, alter those dynamics by clearly showing how Trump would follow through on his most extreme anti-democratic pledges for a second term and then offering expert recommendations uh, on how to mitigate that danger. So the report's going to, you know, will discuss all of these things uh, and um, looks at, you know, what what we can do and what we should do in order to uh, combat it. You know, according to, again, to the summary, uh, it, the report collects a set of promises Donald Trump has made, in his own words, for what he would do in a second term. It places them in their proper context, coming amidst a resurgence of similar authoritarians worldwide that Trump has openly admired and modeled himself after. It examines the powers of the presidency and how it could be used to implement those promises. It explains the legal mechanisms that will be applied to turn Trump's campaign promises into government policy and programs, and it assesses the previously available guardrails that could constrain or prevent these abuses of power and to the extent at to which they will still hold. Uh, it explores the plans 
that Trump and his allies have drafted to circumvent or override the checks in our system that otherwise have or could restrain his most extreme intentions. Based on expert input, it describes how these policies will play out in practice and negatively impact American life upon implementation. So this report serves as kind of a synthesis or a nexus point uh, for reporting uh, that has been coming from sources such as the Atlantic and the New York Times uh, that have been documenting what a second term or a second Trump term would look like. Uh, it, it also builds on an earlier volume that was put out by this group. Uh, and the group, by the way, is called United to Protect Democracy. Uh, and it's, it's issued under their, uh, their division, uh, Project Democracy. Uh, they issued an earlier version of the authoritarian playbook that uh, provided you know, some understanding of how modern strongmen around the world have consolidated power and subverted modern democracies. Uh, so this report builds on that earlier one. Uh, and, you know, ranks Trump's promises, powers, and plans uh, within that context. So, you know, the, the ultimate assessment at, that this report provides uh, is, is sobering. <clears throat> as damaging as Trump's first term was in America, or was to American systems of constitutional government, culminating in his efforts to overturn an election and violently halt the counting of electoral votes by Congress. Uh, so he has promised in his own words uh, to do in if he's returned to office, uh, potentially is even more destructive to our republic. So let's let's dive into a few of the bullet points that are listed. And again, this is just the introduction. The report itself is uh, roughly about 100 pages. Uh, and it, it outlines, uh, for example, Pardons to License Lawbreaking. Uh, and it describes and says, During Trump's first term, he discovered that he could leverage the pardon power to induce witnesses against him into silence. In a second term, he's indicated he would further abuse pardons to incite political violence, incentivize lawbreaking for his benefit, and render himself above the law. Uh, Second bullet, directing investigations against critics and rivals. And, and he, Trump has expressed this uh, on numerous occasions. Um, you know, retribution is the dominant theme of Trump's 2024 campaign, and his allies are making plans to eliminate the Department of Justice's traditional prosecutorial independence to give Trump greater personal control and to direct law enforcement against his perceived opponents and to insulate him from accountability. Uh, next, regulatory retaliation. In addition to steering prosecutorial uh, discretion via the Department of Justice, Trump has vowed to consolidate and wield federal regulatory power to reward political loyalty and punish his critics, particularly those associated with the media. There are numerous reports of his regulatory retaliation happening during Trump's first term, and plans for a second include ways of removing those obstacles that, limit, uh, that limited opportunities for more. Uh, next, we have federal law enforcement overreach. And it states, Trump's declaration that immigration is, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, close quote, is a grim foreshadowing of how he will invoke the Alien Enemies Act, a wartime provision dating back to 1798. Once Trump has that power, he has also expressed his will to expand the footprint of federal law enforcement to police cities and shut down lawful protests. Uh, he's already done such things um, uh, you know, with his uh, upside-down Bible uh, photo op uh, during his first term, for example. <clears throat> Domestic deployment of the military. A central hallmark of American democracy is that the U.S. military not be used against American citizens. But Trump plans to abuse the Insurrection Act to order military force 
to quash dissent and target vulnerable communities. And again, he has already uh, stated for the, on the record that that is something he uh, would look to do. So, you know, it, it's, it's those points and those are the, those are the major, major ones. There are, are uh, several others in there that also uh, deserve a read. Um, the report, you know, in addition to those, uh, considers Trump's uh, repeated uh, flirtation with staying in the office beyond a second term. When viewed in the context of the authoritarian playbook and the actions of Trump-like figures around the globe, this threat becomes hard to ignore. You know, one of the things that you know, you're hearing more and more of uh, people in the progressive and, and uh, independent and, and liberal media stating is that Trump will immediately begin working uh, on, on a plan to uh, eliminate his having to give up the presidency at the end of you know, this four-year term. Uh, you know, constitutionally, presidents are limited to, to one four-year term and a second one if so elected. Uh, but no more. Uh, the idea that uh, Trump and his followers are pushing forward is to have, uh, you know, basically he's not going to go. And, you know, most recently, this idea that he's been pushing forward uh, for immunity uh, speaks, you know, volumes to that in that it, it, it would eliminate his being held accountable to the law for staying as president beyond the end of his term. So, you know, the report ends with uh, some recommendations um, to prepare to protect American democracy. Uh, and I will list those, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, number one, create pro-democracy coalitions before the crisis arrives. Number two, take anti-democratic ideas and promises seriously. Number three, keep a broad pro-democracy movement united against the acute, big-picture, autocratic danger. Number four, support Republicans that stand firm for democratic institutions. Number five, rally around nonpartisan, independent public services, servants. Excuse me. Number six, uphold the rule of law and democratic institutions and always repudiate violence. Number seven, protect the first targets and arrange now to advocate for the most vulnerable. Number eight, evaluate security at the community, household, and personal level. Number nine, work to protect free and fair elections in 2026 and 2028. And number 10, continue building the democracy of tomorrow. So, as I said, this uh, report is available uh, on Substack. Uh, you can go in and search for it, uh, the authoritarian playbook. Uh, I, I strongly recommend uh, that you get it, download it, and, and read it. Uh, it is very insightful, uh, and you know, it, it is a good response to a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing coming out of the right. So uh, there's, there's the roundup for this show. Um, obviously, we've got homework to do. We've got things uh, to do. We've got communication with our elected officials that needs to go on. If you haven't been communicating with your elected officials all the way up and down the line from state to federal and back down, uh, please, I urge you to get into the practice of regularly communicating to your elected officials. Let them know where you stand. Let them know where you want them to stand. Uh, so, you know, we have to uh, regain uh, what areas of our uh, democratic system that uh, have slipped a little bit. And we need to make sure going forward that we maintain a firm grip on a reality-based approach to how our democracy works. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all, as always, for listening. If you have comments, send them an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
Uh, if you get the report and read it, I'd love to hear what you think of it. Uh, give me feedback, positive and negative. I'm, I'm always looking for uh, you know constructive praise or constructive criticism. So thanks always as listening. Please stay safe. Remember, there's a pandemic happening out there. So take care of yourselves. And I look forward to speaking with all of you again in seven days. Thank you.